Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is your host, David Rothkopf, and I am here at an undisclosed location somewhere on the east coast of the United States, not too far from Washington, D.C., where we've got Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School, and we've got Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And at another undisclosed location, we have a new guest for us, Rula Jabrial, who is a foreign policy analyst, um, a commentator, uh, also uh, is a professor at University of Miami, uh, and Rula, I'd like to start with you, first of all, to welcome you to Deep State Radio. Um, but Thank I, you. I, I, you know, you, as someone who comes from the Middle East and is an expert in the Middle East, I want to start in the natural first place, which is the Senate of the United States. Because I've been watching the hearings of uh, uh, Kavanaugh to become a Supreme Court justice, and it reminds me of nothing quite so much as... Uh, proceedings you might see in the Middle East. It is bizarre and unhinged, and I'm wondering if you share this perspective. I absolutely share this perspective. I've seen it many times in the Middle East, and uh, and honestly, it's. Uh, I remember after 9/11 and after the Iraq War, the idea was to export democracy to the Middle East. It seemed that America has imported tribalism and corruption and kleptocracy. I mean, the fact that there's so much secrecy around this uh, judge and the the president uh, and the commander in chief and the chief enforcer of the law in the land is the guy that decides that the public doesn't have the right to know the record of this man who will be on the Supreme Court for his entire life. That will decide for a generation to come our future, uh, the issues around health care, gun laws, and lobbying, and money, and, and all of these issues that are so relevant to our lives, it is scary. It is Saddam Hussein on steroids. Let me put it this way. It's the course that we see in Egypt, in Turkey, and now in America. Well, that's quite, quite an indictment. Rosa, as you sit and watch this thing from the ivory tower of Georgetown University <laughs> Law School, how, how, how does this process look to you? Uh, it's not pretty. And I, I agree that it is, uh, it, it is inexcusable that so few of the records uh, relating to Kavanaugh have been released. And much of what has been released was released, you know, uh, just at the very last instant, which makes it very, very difficult for members of Congress and the Senate Judiciary Committee to to process any of it, much less the rest of it, rest of us. Um, the only thing I would I, I would say is that we already know a lot about Brent Kavanaugh. We, we, you know, I don't, I don't, I very much doubt that there is some 
in, in that trove of documents that hasn't been released. I very much doubt that there's some sort of smoking gun in which, uh, you know, Kavanaugh secretly himself murdered somebody on Fifth Avenue or, or, or anything. You know, I, I, I think my, my instinct is to say that we, we already know everything that we need to know. Um, the issue on the part of uh, uh, Democrats in Congress is likely to come down to political cowardice versus political courage uh, and, and the you know, handful of Republicans who are independent enough to possibly switch sides. You know, so so, so I, I, I'm not sure there's anything that we don't know that would actually change anything here. Um, so what? So if I may, why this secrecy? If there's nothing to know, force I mean, of habit. Being, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure actually. You know, look uh, in the Middle East when they hide something because they have either no evidence uh, and they need to push uh, a certain judgment and narrative, and this is what we see with President Morsi in Egypt, or which is the worst part, that there's something that is so outrageous that they don't want the public opinion to know it. Because I, guess what? You, I mean, we, you might we're right. sitting in front of a president in the White House who, decide, who shows total contempt for the rule of law and has dismissed the FBI director because he wouldn't bend to his will and then harasses every day all kind of people, including Jeff Session, who he handpicked as his AG. And this is the guy that decided that this is his man. I mean, this is his, and he wants to rush it before the midterm. I think people need to understand that there's something rotten in the process. There's a lot that's rotten in the process. And you may be right. You know, there may be something terrible, dark secret that they're trying to keep buried. I'm inclined to doubt it, actually, for, for, for exactly the reasons you've said, you know, that that Trump doesn't tell Trump doesn't tell the truth about whether it's sunny or raining. You know, the man is incapable of telling truth. All of his instincts tell him to lie about everything, even when he doesn't need to. So I don't I don't see I don't see the instinctual lying as necessarily evidence that there's anything that is worth lying about, although it also doesn't preclude the possibility. Well, I think that Rula hits upon one thing clearly, and that is um, they want this done fast, it, w yeah. whether they're hiding something or not. I think they sense that the mood of the country is very likely to change in the next 10, 11 weeks with the election, um, not to mention Mueller, and that the window is closing, perhaps, uh, for them to get this kind of thing done. Ed, where do you come out on that? Oh, there's de there's definitely a rush to get to get what can be done done before before November the sixth. But you know the the chances still remain that the Senate will remain in Republican hands and that therefore confirmations can still be railroaded through um, by McConnell um, if that's if that if that remains the case. Uh, I th I think there's a sort of progressive sort of breakdown of the norms and practices that enabled uh, the Senate to work um, in better times um, that would incentivize rather than punish people for working across the aisle. I think that's sort of disappearing. Uh, I think Mitch McConnell is chief architect of that. But I think the parliamentary parliamentarization of American politics has, you know, been been um, been brewing for really since Newt Gingrich became speaker. 
in 94, and that it just gets progressively worse. Um, I don't know whether there's some deep secret in Kavanaugh's um, judicial, uh, in the hundreds of thousands of pages of, of Kavanaugh's um, uh, legal advice and judicial rulings and private opinions and so forth that haven't yet been released or have only been released very hurriedly in sort of unhelpful batches. Um, by various people. I think the latest was from the Bush people from pertaining to his time as a counsel in the White House. But uh, I don't know whether there is or isn't. I do know, though, that what we we clearly already have established about Kavanaugh in terms of his views um, and in terms of what he's likely to rule on various issues um, before the Supreme Court is shocking enough without without having any sort of great hidden secret in there and is reason enough to have a very deliberate bipartisan (laughs) confirmation process uh, and hell will freeze over before that happens. It's not going to happen. That era is dead. All right. Well, let, let, let's let's move. David, let's... can I add just one more last thing? I think it's clear from the process uh, that what they're trying to hide, probably more it has to do with the Iraq war and the torture and, and the Bush era of uh, playing with the rules around those issues, especially spying on Americans and the black sites that happened. But also it was clear from this process that both uh, that Republicans have abdicated totally their constitutional right to check and balance. And now they're rushing to save what they can save. And it is scary because, again, it sends a message to the rest of the world. You are on your own. It, it basically, and, and this, together with Bob, Bob Ward, uh, Woodward's uh, book, Fear, it gives a picture to the rest of the world, to tyrant around the world, do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter. Laws are an instrument of tyranny. They, they, they can use them as an instrument of tyranny. And on the other end, rest, send a message to our allies that this White House is unhinged, truly unhinged. Well, let's let's zero in on a couple of consequences of that around the world. Uh, I'm interested in two in particular um, in the in the Middle East. Um, uh, let, let me start with one where we've had some revelations last week, which has to do with uh, decisions within the administration to withhold um, uh, funding uh, that that goes to the Palestinians. And then I would like to next go and look at the uh, looming onslaught on Idlib and the situation in Syria. And 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 I want to pick up with you, Rula, because um, you're obviously close to this situation. And there were a series of stories last week um, uh, that uh, were then followed through on. And the administration is cutting off hundreds of millions of dollars of funding, the primary source of funding to UNRWA, the the agency that's going to refugees uh, in Palestine. Uh, And even a number of very senior Israelis have said, this is just going to make the situation much worse. But it's a clear example of the Trump administration and Jared Kushner and the ambassador in Israel, Friedman, just collaborating with one person, which is Bibi Netanyahu, who holds a fairly extreme view on this. So I'm, my, my question to you is, what are the consequences? Uh, more desperation that we know where it leads to more radicalization and more uh, civil unrest and more violence and more destabilization of the area. Uh, Sadly, the Trump administration is fulfilling 
the most extreme agenda of the extreme right wing in Israel, which is a racist one and a, and a policy of dehumanization. You know, I think Jared Kushner and Donald Trump have the mentality of slum lords, where they think, okay, we own this now. We need to get rid of the people here. So what do we do? We cut the water. We unleash some rats and some diseases in the building. So people run off. Except here we are talking about millions of people who for 70 years relied on these agencies for food, for medication, for schooling their children. They're displaced people and somehow live as stateless citizens, not even citizens, refugees. So to cut for them the last ray of hope what do they think they will trigger with that? They have nothing to lose. And when you have nothing to lose, then you, come up, you become a target. And in this case, women and children will pay the highest price. It is staggering to see that some Israeli officials, not all of them, I think Bibi Netanyahu agrees with these policies, but especially the moderate one and the security apparatus who are telling the administration, look, we will pay the price of that. I wouldn't... Uh, be surprised if there's a third intifada. The first one, 87, and the second, 2000. It was like every revolution around the world. It was triggered because of extreme desperation. You don't need millions of people desperate in a land where extremists can play with them. That is dangerous and reckless. Uh, It does seem dangerous and reckless. And Rosa, one of the things that we've seen is The president's capable of dangerous, reckless behavior, um, but sometimes those around him, and we talked about this in the last episode, stop him from dangerous, reckless behavior. But there are some people around the president, and I think Jared Kushner and Ambassador Friedman fall into this category. Stephen Miller falls into this category. Uh, We can name a few others um, who actually encourage his reckless behavior Uh, And those are the areas, the areas where the president is not checked but encouraged that are the most dangerous. And it seems like, lo and behold, you know, he said Middle East peace will be, you know, you know, something he only he can do. Well, it turns out it's not that easy. And I'm just wondering what your take is on these latest developments. Well, you know, (laughs) yes, President Trump specializes in in reckless and dangerous behavior. Um, and I agree with Rula's analysis of the likely impact of this. It's, you know, part of the reason that that insurgent groups and re- and terrorist groups in many settings have been successful is when when they become the sole provider of essential services to populations, people give them their loyalty. And the more you take off alternatives or, you know, if, if we don't want to see the Palestinian population pushed towards more extremist ends and more extremist organizations and leaders, you know, the best thing we can do is give them viable alternatives. And when we take those alternatives away by by uh, unfunding, you know, U.S. U.N. refugee assistance, which we have helped fund for decades, uh, I think all we do is is we absolutely empower uh, the worst rather than empowering the best. Um, so it's it's devastating, yeah, and that leave and that's leaving aside the the humanitarian toll, which is also going to be enormous. Um, um, so no, it's it's devastating, and 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 I think it is it is completely accurate to say that when it comes to Israel and Palestine, uh, there is there are no grown ups there. 
whatever to whatever degree we think that maybe, maybe, maybe there are grown-ups who are going to keep an eye on things in Syria or keep an eye on things with North Korea or keep an eye on things with Iran. Uh, there, there are no checks on on Trump's worst instincts when it comes to this region. Uh, Ed, you spent some time there recently. I'm wondering what your view is on this. I was just rereading um, Bibi Netanyahu's tweet. Um, there was a statement he made um, after um, a, a renaming ceremony for the for the late Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres, in at a, a nuclear center in the Negev de- Desert, and he says. This is in defense of nuclear weapons, but clearly it's a statement from Netanyahu uh, to the broader world now in this context. The weak crumble, are slaughtered and are erased from history, while the strong for good or for ill survive. The strong are respected and alliances are made with the strong. And in the end, peace is made with the strong. Um, This is very much um, the language that Trump respects. Um, the decision with UNRWA to cut the uh, American support for Gaza it was carried out by um, Jared Kushner um, as, as a form of punishment um, for its refusal to participate in uh, the non-existent peace plan that, um, that he's supposedly brewing and which he's now supposedly put on ice. Um, I think Rosa is correct. Well, both Rosa and Runa are correct. There are there are no grown-ups um, in this situation. The broader context is America's continued withdrawal from the Middle East, which began before Trump. It began with Obama for good reasons, in reaction to the catastrophe of the Iraq war and the excesses of American intervention. Um, we've we've now got the second successive presidency that is disengaging from any long-term serious American presence in the Middle East. Um, we're really just confined now to acting through local strongmen, um, allies, whether it be the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia or um, this Prime Minister of, of Israel. And I, I guess the larger question is, should we be careful what we wish for? Um, the the era of bad American interventions was very bad, and the Iraq war was, as I say, a catastrophe. But a Middle East uh, without any kind of American presence, and, and it's the more thoughtful, longer-term, stabilizing kind, I think, that you know, I, I would point, point you towards as being worthwhile, um, is, is one that's going to descend more quickly into anarchy, more quickly into a region where there is no place for the weak, um, and where and where might is right, and where uh, you know larger sectarian sort of conflicts sponsored by Iran and Saudi Arabia on on the the Shia and Sunni side respectively are not going to be contained. And so I find it very very troubling. Um, and um, Trump, of course, is um, Trump, of course, is just making things worse. But of course, we talk about all of this thing at sort of thirty five thousand feet or from a distance. As Rula points out, when we cut off aid to the Palestinians, we are cutting off food, we're cutting off shelter, we're cutting off security, we're cutting off hope for the lives of a lot of people. We're doing this to play to politically extreme groups, and we're doing it in a way that exacerbates danger. And it also empowers those politically extreme groups as Israel continues down the path towards being an apartheid society that's chosen national identity over democracy um, time and time again during the Trump era. But of course, there are other kinds of victims. 
And right now in the Syrian city of Idlib, there is uh, a, a growing likelihood of a military onslaught uh, to clear out rebels that will involve the government of Syria uh, and the support of uh, the Russians. Um, uh, interestingly, in the Woodward book, we heard that um, you know the president initially said after the chemical weapons attack, you know, let's kill Assad. Uh, which Mattis sort of brushed off and, and didn't follow through on. Um, but since then, we've seen a very, very different kind of behavior from Trump. Uh, uh, his ongoing cuddling up to Vladimir Putin uh, and his, you know, sort of tacit acceptance of Putin's goals in this part of the world. Uh, and and then a tweet the other day saying, you know, the, they shouldn't go ahead with this attack on Idlib. Um, and that tweet echoed um, not something else Trump did, but it echoed Obama policy, where nothing was done in Syria, where the Russians and the Syrian government were able to do whatever they wanted to, and the White House opted for the impotence of Twitter diplomacy. And I think neither the Obama administration or the Trump administration would like the comparison, but the citizens of Idlib are going to die just as the citizens of Aleppo died, just as the other uh, citizens and displaced of Syria uh, were displaced because the West has not stepped up and the U.S. has been behind that, uh, both in the last administration and this one. And I'm wondering what your take is on all of this ruling. And I will never forget uh, your generosity when you published two of my op-eds about Syria and from Syria. And you're right, you're spot on. This is a modern day Holocaust, what's taking place in Syria. And when Yibi Netanyahu speaks of the surviving, strong survive, and then we crumble, it echoes Hitler in, the, in, the, in 1923, but also it echoes the sentiment uh, of Bashar al-Assad, who thinks that he, uh, his V-Day is when the majority rises up against the minority and demand equal treatment and demand to be empowered. So what he does is he goes and starts slaughtering them and torturing them and killing them. And when he realized that he's losing territories, then he asked his backers in Iran and in Russia to basically intervene. And today who rules the country, and I've been in and out of the country three or four times, uh, are the Iranian militia, Hezbollah militias, uh, the Shabiha, which are his forces. And they are not going to stand down until they exterminate everybody who stood up and whether you are you will carry weapons or even you ask peacefully for participation and dignity they will kill you and they will kill your entire family this is their plan a genocidal plan that's been carried since 2011 and nobody did anything and this is the shame of our generation we wondered how did the world allow the holocaust to happen we found the answers in syria in Idlib, in in many places before. And it is staggering that we, it seems like never again, the slogan became never mind. And when I saw Trump tweet last week, a, a couple of days ago, I thought, okay, this is either sanctioned by the Russians and it's all words. Because before that, he, even when he asked Mattis, I think basically it's not Mattis that, that stopped him from going after Assad. It was the Russians themselves, because let's remember when they bombed the bases, uh, the military bases, they basically bombed 
a small portion of that, and it was evacuated and used after the attack uh, of the American attack. So it was, it seemed like a coordinated effort. He doesn't care about human rights. He has total disregard for human rights, for humanity, legality, morality, Donald Trump. And that's clear in his foreign policy and in his domestic policy. However, when one day people will wake up and start building a museum to honor the victims of Aleppo and Idlib, I think we should be ashamed that nobody did enough to stop the genocide while it was taking place for years and years, including Democrats. Well, Rosa, this picks up on a, on a theme that we've talked about before. What's happening in Syria is part of the Bush-Obama-Trump foreign policy. And it is a continuum of 20 years of really ghastly foreign policy from the United States in this part of the world. Not saying the U.S. could solve every problem. Not, you know, I don't want to go and get into the, the Obama traditional counterargument, which is, well, what did you want, a major war? But there were things we could do to reduce risk, enhance humanitarian care, provide care for the most innocent, so forth. Neither president, or none of these, neither president, certainly Obama and Trump haven't done anything about it. Um, and it, it really does look like we're sitting here days away from further slaughter. Uh, and 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 essentially, the 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 rest of the world saying, you know, not not you know. Nothing I think that's right. That. No, I, I I think I think uh, never mind is is indeed the uh, appropriate phrase to describe U.S. Uh, policy towards Syria. Um, that after after a good deal of hand wringing and and rhetorical. Uh, denunciations of um, Assad's actions, uh, you know, going going as you say as far back as the Bush administration. I think the Obama administration bears a lot of blame for a completely incoherent Syria policy. Um, that that President Trump has, you know, President. The only difference between President Trump and President Obama on Syria is that President Trump barely remembers to pretend to care. Uh, whereas President Obama did a lot of hand-wringing. Needless to say, hand-wringing is not particularly helpful to Syrians uh, regardless. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think the, the cynical prediction is that the Russians and, and uh, Assad's forces will, will carry on doing what they're doing. Many more people will die. There will be a little teensy-weensy bit of hand-wringing here, conceivably, you know, depending on exactly how things played out, play out, we might even see the type of uh, military strike from the U.S. that we saw in response to uh, the Assad re regime's last use of chemical weapons, which is to say a largely symbolic strike um, that appeared to be carefully designed to seem like we were doing something without actually doing anything that would alter the situation on the ground in a fundamental way. You know, so maybe we'll see that again. But but yeah, I, I think the the, conclu the the conclusion here at the moment depressingly seems to be uh, preordained. Well, Ed, you know, it's it. I, I I seldom get to say this because Rosa's view of the world is so dark usually, but I think it may be worse <laughs> than she's worse than she's describing, because <laughs> you, you know, in the in the course of the past twenty years, thirty years, we've had. A lot of change in the Middle East, and there's been this sense of, well, maybe something good can come out of this. 
And wars have been fought and millions have been displaced and hundreds of thousands of people have died. And as you look across the region right now, what do you get? Well, you get Assad about to consolidate his victory in this horrific Holocaust-like um, slaughter within his own country. You've got the Taliban on the verge of being given the keys back to Afghanistan. Um, you've got uh, 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 a new regime in Egypt uh, that was supposed to replace and improve upon the old regime in Egypt, uh, and it's certainly not done that. You're no closer to peace between Israel and Palestine, and actually the situation within Israel has worsened for the Palestinians fairly dramatically. You have a new conflict in the Gulf in, in, in Yemen. And in Iraq, you've got the uh, Iranians with more influence than they had before, and you've got no stability. And you know, you, one is hard-pressed to look someplace in this region where trillions have been spent um, and hopes periodically raised, where things are actually better off now than they were. You've got also, just in a sort of geopolitical context, Russia playing a far more central role across the region than the United States. Uh, I mean, it's, it's well known that Netanyahu's been more times to Moscow um, in the last couple of years, including since Trump's been president, um, than he's been to Washington. Uh, the same is also true of the Emirati leaders. Um, the Saudis are building very close ties with Moscow. They are doing what is necessary in terms of real realpolitik to cultivate the power that look the outside power that looks to to have real staying power you know referring back to that tweet from netanyahu about the strong you know that could um just as easily be uh, directed at putin as it was at netanyahu's domestic critics um the other power that is increasingly more subtly but increasingly present is china very close relations with um, the Emiratis, building all kinds of structures on the Red, Red Sea. It has uh, now uh, its first ever overseas military base in, in Djibouti, uh, which we do as well, incidentally. I mean, everybody seems to be hosted by Djibouti, but it's nevertheless China's first overseas base, and it's going to be opening a de facto naval base, the other side of the Arabian Sea, in Guado, in Pakistan. So it has its own sort of pincer bases um, to the region. Um, there are long-term uh, great power uh, moves uh, um, in the Middle East by, by uh, powers that are challenging the West, that have a very different conception of what the Middle East should look like than, uh, than we do, which, however imperfectly and at times disastrously we executed, was ultimately, you know, about bringing sort of greater freedom and, you know, women's rights and um, accountability um, to the Middle East, or at least hypocritically arguing that case. Mm. Russia and China, um, Russia and China are not going to be um, either real or hypocritical in making that case. They're just not interested in it. They are interested in the contents of Bibi's tweet, which is strong speaks and um, weak and, and the weak get left behind. And, and, and that's the sort of larger picture of what we're facing. So I want to go... David, if, if I may just... Uh, there's one element about this whole Syria thing. It triggered a massive refugees that went to Europe and now we see far-right European government taking place. However, who is responsible of that is Assad and 
Russia. However, Russia is backing and Putin is backing every uh, racist xenophobe in Europe who says we don't want refugees. Uh, and on the other side, he's going to Europe and demanding billions of dollars to reconstru- for, as reconstruction for Syria. So he is hypocritical like nobody else we've ever seen in our lifetime. He, he bombs Syria, but he doesn't want the refugees. He backs xenophobe racists in Europe, but then he wants Europe to pay for the reconstruction of Syria. I mean, America might have talked about democracy and did something else, but this guy is a genocidal thug who basically wants to destroy world, world order. So I'm not sure he's not hypocritical. He's worse. He is basically a war criminal. I think we can agree he's uh, he's a lot worse um, than anything America could represent. I mean, the, the, the irony here, of course, is you have Trump also supporting uh, regime change in Europe and backing the same forces and encouraging the same forces that Putin is backing. Yeah, I, I do agree on that. Um, I, I know that, that that Rosa has to leave a little bit early. And, and Rosa, I'd like to just turn to you for a, a, a last comment on this sort of broader picture. Because as you look at it, Syria is unstable um, and conflict, uh, the chances of conflict with uh, Iran seem to be rising, both in ongoing proxy conflicts and in terms of direct conflict. We don't really have anything that looks like stabilization in Afghanistan on the horizon. This area has the potential to become much messier for the United States over the course of the next couple of months. And, you know, once again, gets us into that kind of wag the dog territory uh, if the president chooses uh, to take certain kinds of action. Do you think he will or do you think we are firmly on the sidelines? Uh, I suspect we're on the sidelines. I, I, I don't see this president based on for whatever it's worth, the trend lines of the past year and a half. Um, I don't see him doing anything of a military nature that is more than symbolic in the region. So as I said, I, you know, could I imagine another, another strike, uh, uh, teach him a lesson type of strike, um, which is designed to look good, but not actually change anything or, or commit significant or commit or risk significant U S forces. Yeah. Uh, could I see anything other than that in the near future? No. And, and on Iran as well, it, it, you know, as, as on Iran, on Afghanistan, you, on North Korea, at various points, we've seen a lot of posturing, but he has always retreated, whether retreated uh, before actually taking any decisive action, which frankly is a good thing. Uh, whether that retreat is because he has a short attention span and loses interest or forgets what he was planning to do or it, or because uh, wiser heads managed to hold him back, uh, I don't know. But my guess is that we're going to see the same thing. Okay, well, let me ask the final question then on this and go back to the situation with Israel and the Palestinians. There seems to be an effort on the part of the Trump administration to punish the Palestinians by pulling back this aid, to reward the Israelis with the embassy and everything else. They've clearly tipped their hands as, you know, we're there on one side in this right now. Rula, can it be made any worse? Do you expect any additional steps from the Trump administration over the course of the next several months um, that are going to exacerbate this problem even worse? 
Yes, and they will be helped. Uh, look, um, uh, Trump is very clear about uh, where he stands. I, I think his his um, th- this kind our foreign policy, America's foreign policy today is uh, backing the occupation by all means. It's it's bought and owned by Sheldon Adelson. I think APAC and all of these forces, um, Kushner and 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 Jason. Uh, in the White House, and especially Friedman, they all, I believe, financed illegal settlements. So they all agree that the occupation is a good thing and, and it needs to go. My, uh, I, am, uh, I was born at Haifa and I was raised in Jerusalem. And one of the issues that can totally lead to a full-scale conflict, not only with the Palestinians, but with the larger Muslim world, if you touch the Islamic grounds of Al-Aqsa Mosque, of the Dome of the Rock. And we've seen... Uh, if you monitor the conflict closely, it's becoming from a political conflict more and more to a religious conflict. When the embassy opened and then you saw all these evangelicals who, even the pastor himself, who deemed Jews as uh, um, sinners and uh, homosexuals as, as something even more um, more sinister, uh, they deemed that all Jews have to go there, and there's a religious view, and these are the people who are backing Trump. If we uh, relax control around the grounds and unleash these extremists who are well-armed and they do something around the mosque, I predict an absolute meltdown of security around the, the, uh, the compound, but also any target, any American target around the Islamic world become somehow legitimate in the eyes of Muslims. That's what I fear the most. And I see this clo- I see this coming closer and closer. The more I go to Jerusalem, and I don't know if any of you have been recently, you can see how emboldened some extremists are, not only to go inside the grounds, but actually to post on their Facebook incitement and thinking it's time to take it down. I believe Sheldon Adelson himself in a private conversation a couple of times said, knock it down. Uh, my fear, even though I'm, I'm uh, you know, very rational, but if you touch those grounds, I don't know what can happen. I remember I was in Egypt when the Egyptians stormed the American embassy. We can see much worse than that. Well, that's that's a, a daunting reflection. But uh, as I say to the world of our deep state radio listeners, uh, who may be welcoming and hearing Rula for the first time. Rula is one of the smartest, most thoughtful observers on this scene that I know uh, and is extremely well-informed. So I would take these 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 insights and the cautions that go with them extremely seriously. Uh, I'm afraid we've come to the end of the time that we've got for this episode. I do want to encourage everybody who is a regular listener of Deep State Radio um, to go to deepstateradionetwork.com and pre-register for the new website and the new membership offerings that we've got coming up next week. If you do, you'll be able to get discounts on membership, which is going to offer things ranging from you know, swag, you know, mugs and sweatshirts and so forth, to new kinds of content uh, that will add enormously to what you're already getting from Deep State Radio, and in so doing, you'll start uh, to help us uh, uh, with the next phase of our growth, uh, which has been prodigious over the course of the past 15 months and for which we're grateful. 
Um, but go there, register, participate in that. Next week, we'll get into some detail about uh, all of these new developments. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to know why we've been growing uh, so rapidly, all you have to do is think back at an episode like this and the great contributions of Ed and Rula and Rosa. Thank you to all of you. And we look forward to joining you again sometime real soon on Deep State Radio. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.